podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Red Inca, which is part of the 99.94 Network. I'm Jared Kimber. This podcast has adverts, but if you prefer your podcast without, in the show notes, you'll see the link to my Patreon page and you can listen to our chats uninterrupted. Patreon also comes with many other benefits as well, including a Discord channel and private chats with me. But now, the show. This episode of Red Inca, we look at the rehab of Jofra Archer. To do so, we turn to a man who just finished a big piece on him. My name is Will McPherson and my job title is Cricket News Correspondent at the Daily Telegraph in London. We talk about his incredible load, elbow, back, fish tanks, Barbados, skills, Mumbai Indians, rise, New Zealand doctor, and how he collected five more dogs. Take me through, Will, if you could, all of Jofra Archer's recent injuries. And I'm trying to remember where the fish tank plays a part, but if you can just go through the sort of the normal stuff. Well, yeah, I think the story probably starts at the end of 2019, which was his big breakout year, when probably through being overbowled by England, although no one could ever quite prove that, but I think it probably was by being overbowled by England, pretty straightforward. He uh, suffered an elbow injury, which proved to be a stress fracture eventually. What then happened was he was ruled out for a little while. He missed three tests in South Africa. And then he was going to miss a series in Sri Lanka. And then COVID-19 struck. So he got an enforced period to sort that injury out, in theory. He got some rest. And by the time England played again in the summer of 2020, which would be in about July, that injury had healed. He'd had the time to recover. And life goes on, essentially. He then played for a few more months. He played for England. He played in the IPL. Played for England again. And then he was given a rest from the tour of Sri Lanka in January 2021, at which point he managed to hurt his hand, basically cleaning a fish tank in a bath at home. It, it, quite a great injury, but he cut his hand. I mean, he played in India with that injury. It wasn't deemed a big deal. But then also in India, he suffered a recurrence of the, the elbow injury. While he was ruled out with that, they did some surgery on the fish tank injury and over time it became clear that this elbow injury was again a stress fracture a different one a more serious one i think that then ruled him out of the 2021 t20 world cup which england lost him semi-final it ruled him out of that ashes and then early in 2022 he was kind of on the road to recovery he'd had he'd had two surgeries on that operation he was on the road to recovery he bowled with england in barbados where he'd been spending some time and there, I think, my understanding is that was the first time he kind of sensed a bit of back trouble. And by May 2022, that had been diagnosed as a stress fracture of the back, which eventually ruled him out until January 2023, which was last month at the time of recording, uh, when he made a comeback in the SA20 and with England as well, which it actually went pretty well on both counts in the end. But it's been, it was actually an incredible catalogue of injuries, which started three and a bit years ago. It was kind of fits and starts and then it really exploded in, in 2022 where he, he... Well, that's all we've got time for, Will. So <laughs> thanks for... Uh, it's a shame I didn't have um, the sad Hulk music playing under you as you went, uh, went, went through all that. There's a few things. You talked about the workload. So there's two things. He bowls the most overs of anyone in 2019. 
He also has that ridiculous game in New Zealand yeah. where, uh, let's call it the Pat Cummins game, where <laughs> there's a Shield game where Pat Cummins bowled all of the overs for both teams, if I remember correctly, and then didn't play for six years. Uh, it's not quite that. He did play a couple of games after that. But certainly it was, oh, we've got a new toy. Let's smash it into a rock until it breaks. Joe Root did a very similar thing with Joffre Archer. He did bowl a phenomenal amount of overs in 2019. To bowl the most overs when Kagisa Rabada is literally out there, it takes some effort. Yeah, but the maddest thing about that was he bowled more overs in international cricket than any other bowler in 2019. He made his debut, I think, on the 5th of May 2019. Four whole months had passed and five extra days if you want to chuck them in. It's incredible. You know, he played every game at the World Cup. I know England got back themselves into a bit of a corner of that, of that World Cup, but maybe he could have missed... Afghanistan or or Bangladesh or someone. Someone else could have played those games. He missed the first Ashes test because he was feeling a little bit done in. And then he played the remaining four and absolutely carried the attack. You know, Stuart Broad got David Warner out every time, but Arch was the only one taking Mm. wickets at the other end. And he was so important in that England's ability to get a two-all draw. He took a six for in both their wins, if I remember correctly. And the draw at Lords, he, he was the memorable player from that game, his battle with Steve Smith. They then go to New Zealand in November and you're right, he just bowled and bowled and bowled on some ridiculously flat pitches. And that was sort of the start of an unhappy time for him. He he played the first test in South Africa at Centurion at the end of 2019, the Boxing Day test, and and then wasn't seen again in that series because something was up. He's just not the kind of cricketer who you can ask to do all that just because he's got a beautifully smooth action. Doesn't mean it, it's as easy as it looks. It's really hard work. And Well, I think I think part of the reason was they didn't know that much about him. Yeah. And they also didn't bother to find out. White ball or red ball, I don't think. Yeah, You know, Joe Root gets a lot of the blame put at him, but it was the overall setup and the coaching team and all that stuff. He also, if you look back at his history, he was wicketkeeper. Right, yeah. It's not like he had bowled a lot of overs coming through his teenage years. He hadn't strengthened his core or anything like that. He's obviously a f- fantastic athlete and then a fantastic, skillful bowler on top of that. But this is from the outside, and you're a bit closer to England. It felt to me that they were so excited about bringing him into the system. Didn't they change like a loophole or something to get him in earlier? In late 2018, they quietly changed a, a, a qualification thing. It was due to be seven years, so... I think someone like Keaton Jennings, when he played for England, he'd obviously grown up in South Africa. I think he served seven years before he could make his England debut. Archer, who obviously he, he has only you know he has only got one passport and it is British, and his dad is a scouser. He was due to be having to do seven years. We were looking at him, I guess late twenty. He would have been qualifying about now, I reckon. And instead, they changed it. They realised this guy played for Sussex. I mean, I remember being at his championship debut. It was Sussex versus Essex. At Colchester, I don't know whether that might have even last ever first class game at Colchester, but probably is. And uh, he was amazing. I remember just walking. I'd heard his name and not thought much about it. He played a game, a first class game against Pakistan, and impressed. But then this was his championship debut. Chris Jordan was also playing, and Sussex had a strong team at that point. But he, I just was like, wow. He bounced out Tom Wesley's second ball. Wesley was a Test player at that point, and it was just like. Wow, this guy. And England obviously saw that as well. Word filtered through that they had a potentially very special cricketer. So they changed some stuff. And then he makes his debut in May. But you'll also probably remember it was a big hullabaloo about kind of who he'd come in for. And England had quite a settled yeah. attack. Was it Willie? Was Willie or Plunkett out. was going to miss, yeah, weren't but, they? And that was the big, that was the two months. That was yeah. the big thing of how could you get rid of this great team? And it's just like, but, and, and also you and I know, because, you know, back in those days, you followed T20 cricket a lot more. 
you covered the big bash for Kirk Info and for others. You and I knew the hype about him on one yeah. side. So I remember going to the Nets for the Hurricanes and I'd seen some of his Sussex performances and I might have seen him play one or two games elsewhere, but I was in the Nets for the Hurricanes and I must have been talking to, you know, someone like Dan Christian or George Bailey and just having a chat. And like my eyes just kept going over to him and that, one of them just went, yeah, that's something else. So there was this huge hype, but then within English cri former cricketer buzz and English media, there was this pushback of, well, wait a minute. Okay, he's taking a couple of wickets for Sussex and he's playing for the Hobart Hurricanes and some franchise cricket. But let's settle down a little bit. I remember Derek Pringle kept saying, oh, they told me he could bat. I don't think he could bat. <laughs> it's like, well, it doesn't really matter. I mean, you're right, Pring, but I don't think that matters. So there was this kind of like, uh, you know, we're changing the rules to get this guy in and he's going to ruin, you know, the well, not the career, but the World Cup of someone who's done a lot of work. So it's a really interesting little time. And then, of course, he bowls about four deliveries and no one can remember how to spell David Willey's name. Is yeah, there an E in it? We're not sure. Yeah, exactly. He made his ODI debut in um, in Malahide. He bowled well then, but then he played a game. This was actually a, a rare example of good management of him in his first year, but he played one game and they played a five-match series against Pakistan just before the World Cup, which was like the perfect kind of primer. And everyone was absolutely desperate to see this guy bowl. He played one game in a rain-affected, bowled four overs or six overs or something. And it was like, wow. And actually, funny thing about that game, he was a Wisdom Cricketer of the Year in 2019. And I interviewed him and wrote the profile for, for the Almanac at the end of that year, just before all the injury stuff started, actually. And I kind of asked, when did you feel you'd bowled best? And I was basically asking him because I wanted him to say, when I whacked Steve Smith on the head at Lords, or, or you know, one of the great World Cup performances that he put in. And he was like, no, actually, the moment I felt most in the groove was against Pakistan on my home debut at the Oval the game got rained out, nothing came of it, but I felt like I felt a million dollars. And actually, you watch that stuff back and he was amazing in that game. But England decided after that game, they were just going to put him on ice and they didn't want to give other teams and their analysts and all that kind of stuff too much of a look at him just before the World Cup. So I think he maybe played one more game in that series, but he was really carefully managed. And then once they started, they couldn't stop. Well, I, as an analyst who's had to go up against him, I'm not sure what you do. I, I'm trying to think back to my notes. I think the only thing I ever said was if you just keep hooking him and pulling him, because even if he, he's so fast, if you get top, and this was in Australia, so it's a little bit different. Yeah. If you got top edges, whereas people were trying to play him off the back foot and fending him and it's like, well, you're not going to score off that ball anyway, and you're probably just going to get something by. So that wasn't necessary by England. <laughs> Let's go back to the elbows. Obviously the back, everyone who's ever followed cricket understands the, the back thing. The elbow thing has become more prominent in the last, I would say probably Sean Tate is maybe one of the first famous ones. If you go back and you talk to old bowlers, they will say that their elbow quite often hurt. Yeah. And this is also going back to us learning that actually the arm does flex up to 15 degrees and all that sort of stuff. And of course the elbow goes, you've got Tim Bresden goes to bring one of the most efficient bowlers in the world to basically not an international cricketer after his elbow injury. It changed Jane Dernbach's career yeah. as well. Sean Tate, I would say it probably robbed Sean Tate of the ability to bowl consistently fast, which was his main skill set. So you talked about three bowlers who were not quite the same after they did that injury. I remember Simon Hughes getting in a lot of trouble on Twitter, which that's going to shock you, uh, Will, but <laughs> for basically tagging Joffre in and saying he may never play again. There was a lot of concern at that stage that that elbow injury might I mean the end of Joffre Archer. Yeah, the, the elbow injury is definitely the injury that concerned the player, I think, and the England hierarchy more. The back was like, the back was just a gut punch after all this happened. That was like, are you fucking joking? I've just worked back from a year and a half of elbow trouble and I've got this back 
problem, which you know, at that time also in English cricket, stress fracture of the back were like, it was like a pandemic of stress fracture of the back. Like everyone, you play a game for England, here's a stress fracture, sit out for six months. Archer obviously just got caught up in that. It was wrong place, wrong time. And, you know, partly I think people think the back injury was contributed to by the period of inactivity caused by the elbow injury. Yeah. The elbow injury is way more complicated. John Lewis was a big, uh, who's now being a women's coach, but former England coach, was a big mentor of Joffre's. And he told me that that was a massive kind of bowling coach challenge, but scientific challenge as well. I spoke mm. to Durham back about his and he just said he was absolutely never the same again. The kind of hyperextension stuff that you see in a very different way with Joffre. Like Joffre's is just a fiercely straight arm, but Dernback was kind of, it allowed him to do his back of the hand stuff and his kind of USP. I know I know Dernback people, you know, people have a smile about him now, but he was, when he first came onto the scene, he was very effective at that stuff. Robbed him of that. You're right about Tate. And just for the rarity factor of it, I think made it a real, real challenge. And it was kind of like, he'd often get to the point where he was bowling without pain. And you think, oh, okay, I can play a game. I and mean, then he played a couple of games to Sussex in the in the summer of 21. And it was like, oh, Joffre's back, great. We'll play against India this summer. And then it went again. And it was just like, this is a real problem. You've got to slowly but surely sort this out. Or he won't be the same bowler again. And people were talking about it being the Bresnan injury. I don't think it that... I think now people say it wasn't actually the same thing. They obviously were very different bowlers, but... Bresden was high 80s, low not. Yeah. I mean, he touched low 90s. Like, once that, he was robbed of that, you know, and if you take that away from Jofra, Jofra would still be a very interesting bowler because of the high release point that he has and yeah. the skills that he has. But, you know, his ability, and, and specifically, Jofra has a very similar action to someone like Courtney Walsh, I would say. Yeah. And I don't know if that's accidental or, 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 or what the situation is, but very much at the release point where their arms sort of, go into hyperextension mode, yeah. right? And that's how they, specifically, it's why their bounces are so, yeah. you know, brutal. And you can look at someone like, um, Glenn McGrath did it more with his wrist, but some bowlers do it with their elbow and some bowlers do it with their wrist. And the bouncer is the trickiest one when it comes to fast bowlers and their elbows. Insert your own, do bowlers uh, sometimes flex their elbow a little bit when they're, <laughs> when they're yeah. bowling a bouncer? That, that's for someone else. But there's no doubt when you talk to bowlers, they'll say, if you've got a sore elbow, it's the bouncer that is really tricky. In Joffre's case, it's not so much that his bouncer is very important, although obviously it is, but he's also a back of a length bowler yeah. a lot of times, right? And so he really needs that to be strong. If you take that away from him, maybe he's an above average international bowler and a good T20 bowler, but he's not Joffre Archer anymore. Yeah, I also think there's two things. So people reference Archer at Headingley in 2019, not in the first innings when it was Cloudy and Ruff yeah. and Warner who kind of roughed out a few runs in that. And then he just pulled his pe uh, pace back, pitched it up a bit more, I think, and bowled slower, fundamentally slower and found swing. Now, they could have been like, right, well, this is the bowler he's going to be now. But there's two things about that. One, probably his general durability would not have been that suitable for test cricket. Like, he'd, you know, he it just it probably wouldn't have worked that well. He probably wouldn't have been able to bowl test after test doing that. And he wouldn't have had that much of a point of difference to various other bowlers. He would have still been really good, but he, he wouldn't have been elite. And it also would have basically pretty much wrecked his T20 game, I think. He would not have had, you know, the, the high pace that makes mm. him and the, the huge difference between his fastest and slowest and the back of a length thing. So he would have been a good bowler still, but he would have just been fine. He would have been above average, but he wouldn't have been special. 
I think the other problem there is, let's say he does, and he ends up between 83 and 87 miles an hour, and he's very skillful, and he's very smart, and he learns things. And we know he learns new skills very quickly. Yeah. I, I mean, he learned to bowl very quickly. <laughs> so we, we know he has that within him. That's all fine. But England has about 83 versions of that exactly. out there, right? Like, oh, great. We've got a Ollie Robertson who can bowl three miles an hour quicker. Like, it, that's not England's problem. England's problem is finding the guy who can bowl on the pitches in Australia and South Africa and, and India when it's flat, right? And, and so that exactly. would have taken that away from him. Yeah, completely. Let's talk about the rehab. It's really interesting. Obviously, he started collecting dogs at a certain point, which I don't particularly understand how he ended up with that many dogs. But he goes back to Barbados. And it's really interesting because he seems very much at home in England. And as you said, he's, he's was his dad a bus driver or a yeah, tube driver? Tube driver. Yeah. Tube, yeah. yeah. So, you know, he's got these English links. But when he goes through this really dark patch, he does go back to Barbados. And that is obviously still very much for him a spiritual thing as much as anything else, right? Like needs to recharge himself. Uh, they've got great facilities, but he also starts to do things like roll pitches in his backyard and all yeah. sorts of things. He's not really seen as a cricket nuffy, but you talk about that he probably spends more time on Crick Info. And if you go back to the old Joffre Damas tweets, mm. he's tweeting about random games, Will. Like, it's not yeah. just Thashes or India matches. It's like, you know, some BPL game he's watching and stuff. Like, he really was a bit of a cricket nerd. It's not as public with him as maybe it is with some other guys. Yeah, he's, you know, Marnus, we, we know he loves it, but this is different. Like, he he genuinely, like, when, when I, again, to go back to that wisdom profile I did in tw at the end of 2019, he spoke about trawling stats on Crick Info and stuff in that. And I was like, what? This is so weird. I, I thought you were, like, the coolest guy on the planet and you're a nerd. But he actually, yeah, he's really into the game. He watches it loads. I mean, for instance, that, you know, is it 24 he wears for England? But he, he wears Craig Keysvetter's number for England because when, in 2010, when he went to watch the World T20 in Barbados, which is obviously where he was living at the time, Keysvetter was the guy who, like, really lit. He, 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 he loved batting at that time and he loved him. He loved Keysvetter. It's so random now thinking back. Joffrey Archer loved Craig Keysvetter. He was obviously a very good player, but... Like, it's he, not KP. No, exactly. He just he was just really into the game, basically. Mm. And he loves it. And I think that was really painful for him, especially on the second injury here, the, the back injury. Like he joked with us in South Africa 10 days ago that he did really think about buying a ticket and going and watching Chris Jordan in Australia and like going and watching the team as a fan. Nothing to do with them. I think on the Barbados thing, Barbados is home. I'm sure there are lots of strange people who would question his right to play for England and all this stuff. But Barbados is his home and it's where his mum lives and he's, he's very close to his stepdad as well. And I think going back there, you're right, it's like a spiritual thing and it, it just connecting with those people. I think before, in that first two years of his international career, between, well, include, and if you chuck in his Sussex time as well and all the franchise competitions he was playing before that, he, he had a long period which ended with the pandemic of being away a lot and not actually spending very much time in Barbados. And the end bit in the pandemic, he was in bubbles, which every cricketer hated them. But I think Archer really, really hated them. <laughs> Could I just say, do you remember when he broke the bubble to go and see his dog? Yeah. And I think me and many other people in cricket were like, that's the weirdest excuse for going back to see your girlfriend we've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. Now that he has six dogs, I'm not sure that he wasn't going back to see his dog, but it clearly was that bubble life was affecting him. He, I remember, I can't remember what it was, it was one of the England coaches I was talking to at one stage and they were saying that the players didn't really get, because he got dropped in, right? Yeah. And it was such a busy summer and they were all off doing their things. They almost felt like for the first half of 2019 or the first half of his 2019 career, they didn't know anything about him. Yeah. 
None of them had really played with him before. He was just there. And then, is it Call of Duty he plays? Yeah, he loves is Call of Duty, yeah. yeah. And he started playing that with guys like Broad and a few of the other players who were massively into it as well. And they really started to get to know him through that. And I remember we were staying, I was staying in the same hotel with him in South Africa. And he said hi to me when I was at the pool. So it goes back to the old uh, trolling Crick Info days. <laughs> Probably some, yeah. some autoplay. I kept autoplaying every time he was trying to read an article on one of his friends, right? But he said hi to me. And so I started to chat to him. And he he was lovely. And I remember he. I was trying to find a, you know pillows for the kids to sit on. And he went and got the pillows and everything. But he had no chat at all, like in a social situation. But then you hear all these stories of him, like telling his whole life story to people while he's playing Call of Duty while, and while he's also screaming out, I don't know, tactical advice yeah. and everything. Like he is, he's just a real, he's a different person, even within English cricket, but even within a normal cricket, he just is a very, very interesting introverted person who obviously thinks a lot more than maybe we ever see. And it comes out in weird ways, like collecting dogs. Exactly. Yeah. And actually one of the challenges of, um, doing this piece and one of the limitations of it actually of writing about Joffrey's comeback is how private he is you know he, he's got a big social media presence right but it's quite carefully curated what he puts mm -hmm. out and it's a lot of it's very like silly and kind of you know memes and stuff rather than letting much of himself out there beyond the fact that he likes Call of Duty and he likes dogs the dogs thing is really really sweet actually just he's had this one dog since he was 16 so that's I guess about 10 years and then he was at home for a bit. He realised he was going to be there for a bit longer and he just bought five more. <laughs> and I think that's lovely. I mean, the Barbados thing as well, like that was a tactical decision by England and that was smart. They did realise that if they cooped him up in Hove, where, you know, he, he lived in the same apartment block as Chris Jordan for a long time, obviously his, his closest friend. But CJ was playing the game. CJ was going all over the world. Mm. Like CJ was rarely in Hove. So keeping Joffre in Hove and... And having him wandering down to the creek ground there and being managed or driving up to Loughborough and being managed there or having people, it just was never going to be a happy existence for him. So I just said, go back to Barbados, enjoy this sun, enjoy this, the sea, enjoy your family's company. We trust you to look after yourself. We will check in as regularly as you can. And they also had kind of uh, people like Vazbert Drakes, people like Franklin Stevenson, who just keeping an eye on him. It's a good setup, Barbados, isn't it? You know, Roddy Eswick would was Roddy Eswick one of his school coaches, but I know Roddy knew him when he was young yeah. as well. Like, there's so many great old bowling coaches there that you could kind of call up and just be like, uh, you know, can we do this? And then there's the academy facilities. There's lots of good club facilities. Plus, he rolled his pitch in his backyard. Harder to do that in an apartment in Hove. Yeah, and while you know a lot of people in Barbados would love Joffre to be playing for the West Indies, and and are gutted about, about the way his career path has played out, there's no ill feeling towards him. Like, he's loved there. Like, there's just a recognition. He's loved, particularly in the Creek community, but there's a recognition that he has done the right thing for his uh, his career and he had, a, he had a right to play for England and he's taken it up. And it and it will, ultimately is probably a very sensible, clever decision. There's no ill feeling. People love him. People want to help him. And it was kind of a very, I feel like, from what I learned about his time in Barbados during his injury, it was quite a community feel to it and a lot of people helping him out. And he could always... Bowl. I think there's a guy called Keon Harding who's played CPL and stuff and, you know, kind of young Windies player. Not played for Windies, I don't think, but in that, in that pathway, he bowled loads with him and just kind of, I think it's quite a cool setup. And he he actually said to us he, he didn't feel like he wasted a single day while he was injured, which is interesting because it's so easy to become despondent as a as a professional sports person. Obviously, I haven't been there, I had a major injury as a professional sports person, but you hear so much about it. 
the kind of mental anguish that comes with it. And it would have been incredibly tough, especially when round two turned up. But he managed to be productive, keep his head up. And I think that's pretty impressive. Just a couple of interesting ones. There's a guy called Rowan Shooten, who I have yeah. no idea if that's how you pronounce it, but that's what I'm going with. Not uh, do I, actually, but yeah. I don't think I'd ever heard his name before. And you talked about him being a fast bowling back specialist. So he's based out in New Zealand. And so him and his mentor were involved with Shane Bond and some of the other New Zealand bowlers and rebuilding their spines and everything. Take me through that. Yeah, so it was this dude, Graham English, in Christchurch, who English would be something like early 70s now. So he's actually retired. But he kind of pioneered this treatment of stress fractures of the back, which relates specifically to fast bowlers or cricketers. Obviously, spinners can get them as well, but it's a fast bowler's injury, really. Mostly, But yeah. he, it basically involves sticking two screws and some cable and pulling these like kind of tension bands and stuff like that. And it sounds horrendous. Like it, it is. It, Just like my arm then. <laughs> exactly. But it's like, it's a horrendous injury. It's like L4, L, L5 lumbar yeah. stuff. I way beyond my comprehension, but he pioneered this surgery and, and Shane Bond, obviously in the 2000s when he was playing, became the kind of poster boy for it. But Matt Henry had it when he was early 20s. James Pattinson went to see them. They, that, James Pattinson's considered the one who was like the most challenging to sort out. I'm not surprised. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> English passed on this knowledge to, or this technique to Shooton. I think actually with Pattinson, Shooton did the operation, but English was like there watching, making sure he's doing it right. But Shooton's now the guy who does this surgery, but it's still really rare. And I haven't heard of an English bowler or an England bowler have it, anyone from this side of the world going over there, but they made this decision. I don't know whether it was a kind of expediency thing, like kind of speed things up a little bit for Joffre, because if you just do the normal, you know, look at Saqib Mahmood had a stress fracture at a similar time and they've gone for the natural recovery process. And he's only just coming back to bowling now, whereas Joffre bowled at England in November in Abu Dhabi, like he's been okay for a little while, Joffre. They've just mm. been really cautious. Archer did have a stress fracture when he was really young, as you said. Like he was a wicket keeper, he bowled left arm spin, and then finally he found right arm fast. But that unsurprisingly meant that I think when he was about seventeen, when he first came to England, or maybe eighteen, he got a stress fracture. So he had had one before, and perhaps that's why they went down this route. ECB were really careful with this operation as well. They like they spoke at length to cricket Australia doctors about Pattinson and whether, you know, because Pattinson obviously didn't last actually that much longer after he mm. had this operation and like whether bowlers could come back from it. I think it was felt that Archer was would have been about 26 when he had the operation last summer. And he went over to Christchurch. It's incredible, really. It's a long way. He literally went to the other side of the planet to have this, this operation done. How many hours would it take to fly from Barbados to Christchurch? It... Well, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that, that, Even that, from Sussex, there's yeah. no quick way to Christchurch. There's no quick way to Christchurch at yeah, the best of times. But yeah, that, it's just in, incredible. And he wouldn't have been there for that long, really, I don't guess. I guess he would have been in and out and about in a few days. But that was, I think, the moment that people say that Archie was just like, right, I've had that operation. This will sort me out. I trust these guys and I will be back. I will come back and I'll be the same bowler as before. And obviously the back injury had a slight, the only positive was back injury was it allowed the elbow a little bit more time to just rest up. And I'm sure they had him doing certain things to help out with that. But it was, yeah, that's a thing that I haven't heard of an, an England bowler do before, go all that way for an injury. But, I, you know, the evidence of South Africa, and it is early days, but the evidence of South Africa is that it, it was a good decision. 
he obviously comes back through Cape Town, the Mumbai franchise. Interesting that you know in there that there's an ECB staffer. And then he plays almost a couple of warm-ups for them, really. And then he said he was going to be 80% when he came back for England. I think he bowled 89 miles an hour in his first spell when yeah. he came back. That was a weird wicket, actually. Got a bit of tap in that game. Had a rest, came back in the third game and was outstanding. What looked like Joffre Archer. His bouncer looked absolutely uh, menacing. The top order of South Africa played him okay at times, but the tail were at square leg facing him. He looked terrifying. Yeah, he did look really good. Just on the MI Cape Town thing. My Cape Town. I don't know how I was supposed to say that, but um, he. My Cape Town. My Cape Town, yeah. <laughs> that was an interesting thing in and of itself because it, it was a kind of modern global dynamics thing. He's mm. obviously a Mumbai Indians player now. He will be playing in the IPL for them in a few weeks. I'm sure England fans might, some England fans will be watching that through their hands because it will be a nervy time. But they wanted him to come. Originally, they signed him for two games. Uh, yeah, you mentioned a guy called Ben Langley, who was an important England medical guy for a long time. And he actually left ECB in November, but he, and to, to join Mumbai Indians, which is an interesting trend of staff from mm. Nash governing bodies joining big franchises. But anyway, he, he joined Mumbai. And I think his presence, although he'd left the ECB, his presence put the ECB's mind at ease a little bit. And originally he signed, they were signed up to play for two games but, and, and England were then going to have two 50-over warm-up games in South Africa. But the absurd nature of that tour last week meant that they just binned off those warm-up games. And they said, why doesn't everyone stay and play franchise cricket? So he played three more games, but there was one little stipulation about that, which was that he wouldn't fly. So all of his games were in the... Western Cape, so he played either in Pal or Cape Town. He didn't when they went down to Cahoba, I think is how you say Paul Elizabeth these days, possibly. But that when the team went down there, he didn't go. He stayed back and he was left out of the squad. So they didn't want him like piling across Africa in, in flights all the time, which I think was quite sensible for a guy with long term back injuries. The first spell for my Cape Town was the one where I was like, Oh my god, this is so good. Like he bowled a wicked maiden first up. And that was amazing. And then, as you say, his first game for England was it was slow. Like it was like, oh, he looks good here. Everything looks in order. He didn't crank the pace right up, but he got to eighty nine, and he just took a bit of tap. <laughs> it just it happens on flat wickets in small grounds in South Africa. Boundaries are right in in Bloemfontein. He's a bit unfortunate. Bavuma top edge six things like that, and the figures ended up being his most expensive in ODIs. And you're like, I just don't really feel he deserves that. But they were the statistics. So the second game, he sits out. That was always the plan. Third game, he came back. He actually had a long bowl the day before that game as well, which I was slightly surprised with because the word is that with Archer now that he's not bowling very much outside games. He's being really, really careful with how he manages himself. But that third game, he just looked. Every time Butler needed a wicket, he went to him and he ended up with you know six for not very many. His best international figures and... All the archer wickets were there, I suppose. All the archer white ball wickets were there. But the short ones, full ones. You know, when you got rushing a guy like Aidan Markram, batting in the middle order for South Africa in that format, like it's, they were really strong wickets. They weren't cheap, kind of, you know, pick them up. So that was just so encouraging. My Cape Town, surprisingly, were really, really bad in SA20, as I'm sure you know. So they're out. So he's now done with that. And he's got about three weeks of no cricket, which is important. And then he's going to Bangladesh with England, then the IPL. And then, you know, fingers crossed, test match summer this year, which would be amazing if he could be back in the ashes because it's been too long without Archer in test cricket. The white ball stuff has been amazing, but you do feel like that's where he, you know, he's kind of, he could be unbelievable this summer. 
and that's really exciting. They're also going to India next January. They will want him involved in that. I hope that they've learned the lessons of 2019. I suspect they have, and I suspect actually Ben Stokes has proved to be an extremely empathetic captain so far. So fingers crossed he recognises that, you know, even three Ashes tests might be too much for a guy who hasn't played test cricket for a long time and just manage him. Yeah, there's loads of other bowlers for England at the moment. They're actually weirdly all fit at this point in time. Might be different in a week's time when they started playing in New Zealand, but they are all fit at the moment. So just be careful with them and uh, fingers crossed he, uh, he can be managed carefully. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to Red Inca on 99.94. For more information about us, go to 99.94dm.com. Remember to download our app or just search for West Indies, India, England, South Africa, and Sri Lanka with the search term 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. There is more information on my guests in the show notes. Please support them where you can, but also support us. If you can't help out on Patreon, every single review, share, or word of mouth suggestion to your friend helps us. However, this podcast is made available by the people who support us at Patreon, so thank you to all of those who do. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the best audio anyone can from random Zoom calls. We also have a great support team from 42, with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia, and Meda Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. Our theme tune is by The Red Crickets.